Well, you know, one of the most basic needs of every soldier in a war is trust. Trust in his or her fellow soldiers. Because in war, the soldier's life is dependent upon his fellow soldiers. That's why people who come back from war will often, uh, they will often remain very close for the rest of their lives with those they served with because they place their lives in each other's hands on the battlefield, and as a result, there's a bond of trust between them that is not easily broken. In fact, uh, in fact there has to be, because if they don't have that extraordinary level of trust between them, then they don't have anything, because the battle plan was not created for each soldier to fight independent of one another. No, battle plans are drawn up and soldiers are trained and equipped to fight the enemy together, which means trust between them is paramount because you don't want to walk into that kind of fight against an enemy who is bent on killing you. You don't want to go into that kind of fight without knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that you can trust your very life to the soldiers who are with you. I'm just telling you, that's a special kind of trust. And do you know, that is the very same kind of trust that God wants all of us to have in him and in one another. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we are at war against an enemy who is bent on destroying our souls for all of eternity. The Apostle Paul said, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, okay? Believers and followers of Christ are not at war against this world, all right? We're not at war against the culture. We're at war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. And yet if we don't, if we don't trust our lives in the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if we don't have that special kind of trust between us, then I'm telling you we don't have anything because we were not created or equipped to fight this war alone. No, God's battle plan for us in, includes, in, in fact, it demands a radical trust both in him and in one another because you can know his plan for your life. You can want it with everything inside of you, but if you do not trust God to lead you there or trust others to help get you there, when the big battles in our lives come, and we all know, right, they will come, you will continue living outside of his perfect will for your life, never taking possession of what is meant to be yours. Think about it. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many people here today know that God has a plan for your life and you know that that plan, you know what that promise is, but you have yet to see it fulfilled in your life. You can almost see it, but you can't seem to take possession of it. It's right there in front of you. You know it's what God created you for, but you can't seem to make the dream your own. Well, the truth is, uh, the truth is that's a fairly common dilemma for a lot of Christians. You know, 
you know that God has a plan and a promise for your life, a dream that he's put inside of you, a, a dream that you've been thinking about and waiting for for a very long time, but you can't quite seem to get there. It's always just, just a bit out of reach. Well, I'll tell you what it very often boils down to, honestly, is an issue of trust or, or a lack of trust in God and in others to see that dream, that vision, that calling, that plan for your life come to fruition, which is, which is how it has been, by the way, from the very moment our enemy convinced the first two human beings on this earth that the God who created them could not be trusted. Ever since then, people have struggled with trusting God and trusting others. And yet, as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, there are times in this life when we have no other choice but to trust God and each other if we're going to be able to take one more step forward toward the destiny that he's created us for which is exactly what's happening in the story here as Joshua and God's people prepare for what appears to be shaping up as their biggest battle to date. Uh, it's a battle that stands between them and God's promise for them. And yet the entire battle plan, more than anything else, the entire battle plan is based on trust. Trust in him and trust in each other. It's a radical trust that makes no sense to the world. It makes no sense to the enemy. In fact, it may not have even made any sense to a lot of the Israelites at the time, but that's the way trust works, and that's why it isn't always easy, because trust requires us to rely on others even when we're not certain of the outcome. It can be very hard to do, right? You know that makes us uncomfortable. And as a result, a lot of people opt to just rely on themselves instead. They have self-confidence, but no confidence in others. But when you live your life that way, you will always be on the outside of your dreams looking in because God's plan requires us to be led by him and helped by others because we were not created to get there alone. And so... Uh, you know, self-confidence is great, but I'm telling you it is woefully inadequate when it comes to realizing God's plan for your life, okay? Until we learn to trust God to guide us there and to trust others to help get us there, we will always fall short of taking hold of that dream and making it a reality in our lives, which is actually how God intended for it to be because he wants us to learn to live our lives with a radical trust in him and a radical trust in each other. And our story today is a great example of that. So we're going to jump back in right where we left off last week at Joshua chapter 6 which is actually a, a continuation of the conversation that Joshua was having with Christ himself at the end of chapter 5, where Jesus appears to Joshua on the plains of Jericho with his sword drawn, and Joshua asks him for instruction for this coming battle, this looming battle with Jericho. And Jesus Christ responds, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Right? Let's just take care of first things first. And Joshua does that, of course. He humbles himself before the Christ, which means only now is he ready to receive 
his marching orders, and that is where we pick up the story, okay? We'll start by reading the first five verses, Joshua 6, verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. You know, I can almost hear... Joshua thinking, what? <laughs> Seriously, Lord? That's your plan? We've spent 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years anticipating this day when we would finally be able to take possession of the dream that we've had for so long. We faced hunger. We faced thirst. We've traversed some of the most inhospitable terrain imaginable just to get here. We, we built two memorials out of stone. We, we circumcised all the men in obedience to your command. We, we even celebrated the Passover and now we've armed ourselves. We've left our families behind and we've prepared ourselves for this epic battle. So just to be clear, you want us to march in circles around the most heavily armed and well-fortified city in all of Canaan for a week with some trumpets and then yell really loud when we're done. <laughs> in the history of battle plans, this has to be the worst one I've ever heard of. There isn't a military expert on the planet Earth who would ever come up with this battle plan. Now, you have to understand what Joshua understood about this city. Jericho, or Tel El Sultan, Sultan's Hill as it is known today, is one of the oldest fortified cities in the ancient Near East. In fact, many, I would say most archaeologists would say it is the oldest walled city in the world, dating all the way back to 10,000 BC. It was extremely well supplied and well defended. In fact, you can go there today and see a 30 foot high tower that dates back to the Neolithic period, 6800 BC, a fortified tower. That is a poignant reminder, especially from all the way back then, of the defensive capability uh, that existed at Jericho at its peak. It set atop this impressive 10-acre hill with an abundant natural spring and fertile land. In fact, people said it was an oasis in the wilderness. They often referred to it as the city of palms, which meant the residents of the city could wage a war of attrition, starving out the enemy who would be forced to fend for themselves outside the city walls, while those inside were more than adequately uh, supplied and protected, because in addition to the, the supply of fresh water and food, Jericho's walls were massively thick, 
Its warriors would have been perched on top of them, very well armed, looking down on the Israelites as the Jews day hike around the city, blowing their trumpets. From a military perspective, for the Israelites, this was pure insanity. But if he was going to see the dream that they'd held for so long finally realized, Joshua had to trust God. Because God was very clear with Joshua in verse 2. He said, I have given Jericho into your hand. In other words, it's already done, pal. You just need to trust me, which is the only way, by the way, you're ever getting inside of that city. It won't happen by ramming the walls. It won't happen by way of sending in spies. We already saw how that went. It won't happen by starving them out. They have plenty of supplies. No, if you are going to take that city, it will be because and only because you trusted me, even when it made absolutely no sense to you. And therein lies the lesson for every one of us today when it comes to trusting God. You see, we don't always trust God because we don't always understand God. We want him and his plans for us to fit into our own uh, narrative, into our own story that we envision for ourselves and for our lives. And so when he doesn't do it the way we thought he would or should, we hesitate sometimes to, to truly trust him. But look, God cannot be contained within the confines of our uh, human intellect or reasoning. We, we want so desperately to understand everything that God is doing all the time. In fact, you know, I actually know Christians who believe that God is obligated to explain himself to us before acting on our behalf. Yet in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God was pretty clear when he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far God's ways are superior to the expectations of human intuitions. Think about that. Not only are we definitely not going to understand everything that God does or commands us to do, but he is under no obligation whatsoever to explain himself to us. Read the book of Job. We, however, are unconditionally obliged to place all of our trust in him even when we don't understand what he is doing if we're going to take hold of the dreams that he's put inside of us. One of the wisest human beings ever to walk the face of the earth, the 10th century B.C. King Solomon, once wrote these words. He said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. And just so that we're all on the same page about who this Solomon was, this is how he is described in the Bible. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. 
so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and birds and reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34. This is the same guy who said when it comes to God, You better trust him with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. (laughs) If Solomon, in all of his unsurpassed wisdom and understanding, was convinced that he had to trust God even when he didn't understand what God was doing, I think it's safe to say we should do the same. Okay, look, you may be facing the biggest battle of your life right now, and you know that the dream, the plan, the calling that he's given you is on the other side of that battle. But no matter how uh, you try to reason it out, no matter how you try to figure it out, no matter what you've tried or what you can come up with, nothing seems to be working. Nothing seems to make any sense, and yet all the while, God is saying, trust me. I got this. In fact, my friend, I've already taken care of it for you. You just need to trust me and do what I tell you to do, even if it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes that's the hardest part of the battle. Just trusting God because we feel so helpless when we don't understand the plan, when we, uh, when we can't see the path forward. But look, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, you're in a no-lose situation as long as you trust him, even when you don't understand what he's doing. This is exactly what Joshua had to do. Let's see how he responds, verses 6 and 7. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord, And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Joshua did exactly what he was told to do. This is the radical obedience that we talked about last week, which comes out of Joshua's radical trust in God, because it's hard to be obedient to someone if you don't trust them first, right? So Joshua did trust God implicitly, and even when he didn't understand what God was doing. Let's keep reading, verses 8 through 14. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. 
Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets, ram's horn, before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord with the trumpets blew, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. It's one thing uh, for Joshua to encounter the Christ himself on the plains of Jericho to receive instruction about marching around the city, blowing trumpets for a week while the enemy watches you from above. But now, Joshua has to give that same command to the people, right? They, uh, they aren't hearing it from the commander of the army of the Lord. They're hearing it from Joshua, a nearly 90-year-old man who has yet to lead them into battle. And to be honest, I just, I just wonder when they first heard his instructions in that moment, I wonder if they were thinking, what? Seriously? <laughs> Joshua? That's your plan? Right? We've spent 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years anticipating the day when we would finally be able to take possession of the dream we've had for so long. And just to be clear, you want us to march around the city in circles blowing our trumpets. Of course, we don't actually know what they were thinking, but we do know what they did. They did exactly what Joshua told them to do because they knew well and good if they were going to overcome their greatest battle yet, even if they didn't understand it all, the Israelites had to trust Joshua. Right? He was the man that God had chosen to lead his people at that moment in time. He had proven himself not perfect, but faithful. He'd given his life to serve them as he was leading them. The truth is Joshua had given them every reason to trust him, even though there was no way they could have understood the battle plan that he was giving them now. But Joshua had been with Jesus. And the people knew that Joshua was for them. So they trusted him. They submitted their lives to his leading. And yet it's important to point out here that God's battle plan was specifically designed to teach Joshua and the congregation of people something about themselves, okay? This crazy battle plan wasn't uh, drawn up by God to make a lasting impression on the enemy. No, not at all, because the enemy was about to die. God wasn't trying to impress something on the Canaanites by having his people march around the city without attacking. No, the Canaanites were already defeated. This wasn't for their benefit. This was designed to teach the enemy something. No, this was designed to make a lasting impression, to teach something to the people of God. Because if God had said to Joshua, hey, pal, storm the gates. Go in before the people with your sword drawn. Lead them into battle. If that had been the plan, which is what you'd expect, the people could have very easily begun to take credit on themselves, for themselves, with Joshua, their own success, instead of giving the credit to God. So God designs a battle plan that leaves no room for discussion when it comes to who is ultimately responsible for their victory, which again was for the benefit of the Israelites, not the enemy, which is so profoundly meaningful for all of us today. Because so often when we're facing battles in our own lives, 
and circumstances that are not unfolding like we think they should. We wonder sometimes if we're doing something wrong, don't we? We wonder if the enemy is maybe gaining ground or we wonder if God is going to even defeat the enemy or break down those obstacles that keep us from experiencing the victory we so long for and yet all the while God is working on our behalf. In fact, he's, he's not even the slightest bit engaged with what the enemy is trying to do to you because the enemy's already been defeated. No, no. <laughs> What God is doing is for our benefit. He's working in ways that are beyond our understanding so that when the victory comes, we cannot claim one scrap of credit for ourselves. You see, his battle plan for the struggles that we face in life is meant to teach us to put all of our trust in him. And along the way, he uses people who he's placed in our lives People have proven themselves, certainly not perfect, but faithful. People like parents and spouses and pastors and friends. He uses those people to confirm for us that this seemingly crazy amount of trust required for us to follow God into the battles we face is actually exactly what we need if we're going to overcome those battles. It doesn't make any sense to the world. It doesn't make any sense to the enemy. In fact, at at times it won't make any sense to us, but that is by God's design. So there's no mistaking who it is that is responsible for our victory when the victory comes. Okay, when when you're facing um, insurmountable uh, obstacles in your life, it is imperative that you trust God and also that you trust those whom he's placed in your life. Those who are not perfect but proven themselves faithful. Those who have given their own lives to serve you and to lead you because they want you to fulfill God's plan for your life as much as you do. That doesn't make any sense to the world. It doesn't make any sense to the enemy. And I'm sure the Canaanites who were standing on the walls of Jericho looking down at the Israelites were thinking, what in the world are those people doing? But that's what radical trust looks like. It looks like victory. In fact, do you want to know the most interesting part about the plan? This plan for the Israelites to march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, right? The King of Kings and the trumpets being blown, which announced his presence and the soldiers following, which demonstrated their strength. The most interesting part of all of that was how it so closely resembled these royal processionals that were common in the ancient Near East when a king was going out to pronounce judgment over someone or after a battle that had already been won. We have a a Hittite text from the 13th century BC that described these elaborate processionals that would happen each day from the royal palace to the place where the king would hold court And then back to the palace each night with royal bodyguards and special chanters who would announce his coming and going, much like the Israelites marching around the city and then returning to camp each night with their armed guard and their trumpets blowing. Of course, victory processionals with trumpets and troops and the king were very common after a successful battle in ancient times, which is just what this plan by God for his people looked like by design because that's exactly what it was 
You see, in fact, this wasn't a battle plan at all. God had already defeated the enemy, and now he was pronouncing his judgment over the city and having his people take their victory laps even before they entered the city. You understand that's the kind of assurance that you can have in God when you face your greatest battles in this life with a radical trust in him, as we'll see. Let's keep reading. Verses 15 through 21. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people and the wall, uh, the people shouted a great shout, the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword." So Joshua and the Israelites follow God's instructions to a T, at least up to this point. And as a result, the great walls of Jericho, uh, these double casemate walls thick enough for people to make their homes inside, at least a portion of the walls large enough for the Israelite army to enter, fall flat to the ground, allowing the Israelites to capture Jericho, killing the enemy, leaving the plunder, and burning the city. This is one of those famous stories in scripture that people love to tell but honestly have a hard time believing to be literal because it sounds literally impossible. I want you to know modern archaeology at the site of Jericho which has been extensive by men such as uh, the famed British archaeologist John Garstang in the 30s, most recently Dr. Bryant Wood in the 90s. They've shown clear evidence of collapsed mud brick walls, not, not walls that were broken down from the outside, but walls that had fallen down flat. And they didn't fall inward. They fell outward, creating a ramp of fallen bricks by which the Israelites could easily go up into the city, every man straight before him, as described exactly in verse 20. There is also clear archaeological evidence of a rapid defeat in the springtime, just as described in the Bible. Archaeologists have found large stores of carbonized grain that had just been recently harvested right before the siege took place. Also, all of the jars found in the ruins were full of grain, proving the siege took a very short amount of time since the people living inside the walls consumed very little to none of that grain. It's also important to point out that grain was a very a highly valuable commodity, and so the presence of so much of it in the city supports the biblical account that the city was not plundered. And yet there's overwhelming evidence that it was burned 
just as described in verse 24. Archaeologists unearthed a layer of burned ash and debris at that site, three feet thick. Another archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, uh, wrote this based on her findings in the 1950s. She said the destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt, but the collapse of the walls of the eastern rooms seems to have taken place before they were affected by the fire. Exactly as described in Scripture. The walls fell down before the city was burned. There is copious archaeological evidence that as God's people trusted him to do the impossible through the most unlikely set of circumstances, that is just what he did. That's just what he's still doing today, by the way, in the lives of his people when we trust him in the face of our own greatest battles. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 22 to the end of the chapter. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who had belonged to her. And they brought all the relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So the Israelites destroy uh, everyone in the city and the city itself with the exception of a prostitute named Rahab and her family because of a previous agreement that she had made with the Israelite spies back in chapter 2. Now, we don't have time today to, uh, to go back through everything that we learned about Rahab, but if you're interested at all, uh, you would do well to watch the message from that day. It's titled Chosen, and it tells the story of Rahab. She's one of the most remarkable uh, characters in all of scripture who goes from the lowest of the low in terms of her standing in society to a wife and a mother in the lineage from which comes the Christ. It is a truly inspiring story about what God does through those who choose to trust in him and in his people. And so this chapter of uh, the Joshua saga chronicles the outcome of Rahab's faithfulness to God and to the spies. And so as the Israelites are now laying waste to the entire city, just take a minute and try and put yourself in Rahab's shoes. The outer wall has collapsed. An armed invasion is underway. Tens of thousands of Israelites are pouring into the city, putting all of the occupants of Jericho to the sword. 
The city is on fire and everything around them is being destroyed and out of the entire Israelite force, violently swarming into Jericho, killing and burning, there are only two men who even know who Rahab is. How tempting must it have been for her during those days after the spies had left but before this attack, knowing what was coming. How tempting must it have been to leave the city sometime before the siege, to take her family into hiding. She obviously knew the lay of the land. She knew the best places to hide for she directed the spies back in chapter 2 to go west of Jericho into the Jordan Valley where there were plenty of hills and caves and grottos, perfect places for them to avoid detection. How tempting must it have been when the walls began to collapse around them? How tempting it must have been for Rahab to take her family and flee their house inside the walls of the city instead of waiting it out to see if the spies would make good on their promise, the ones who told her she must stay inside. How tempting it must have been to completely panic as your entire world is being destroyed around you and the only vestige of hope for you and everyone that you love is two men among tens of thousands of attacking soldiers. How tempting it must have been for her to try and surrender to any number of the troops fighting their way past her door. But do you understand any of those other options they must have been so tempting, but any of those would have ended up in the sure death of Rahab and her family. There was only one option at the end of the day if she and her kin were to survive the assault from God's people. Rahab had to trust the Israelites. Is savvy and as smart and as calculating and resourceful and faithful as Rahab was, and man, she was, she could not do what needed to be done to see God's plan for her life fulfilled without the help of others. And neither can we. She couldn't talk her way out of this one. She couldn't hide her way out of this one. She couldn't plan her way out of this one. She couldn't bargain her way out of this situation. The only thing that Rahab could do is trust that the Israelites would make good on their promise, which is a truth that we really, really need to accept for our own lives today. We cannot and we will not overcome the greatest battles in our lives alone. It doesn't matter how smart we are, how resourceful we are. It doesn't even matter how faithful we are because we were not created or equipped to fight the battles alone. Now, to, to get to the other side of our greatest battles in life, God says, you're going to need me to guide you there and you will need others to help get you there. And yet I see believers, followers of Christ all too often trying to fight their greatest battles in life alone. Why? It's because they don't trust others to help get them through it. Many of them are resourceful people. Uh, they're confident people, smart people. In fact, many of them are faithful people in many ways, and yet they're not willing to trust other people, so they pull back from the church. And they might stay in fellowship with a small handful of Christians and call it being a part of the church, but the reality is they're not willing to trust other people, so they run from the church and hide. 
They don't ask for prayer. They don't ask for help. They don't seek fellowship. They don't contribute to the family of God. Instead, they opt to rely on themselves, keeping the church, the people of God, at arm's length. The terribly sad truth of that is they will never fully walk in the victory that could be theirs until they're willing to trust their brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, does that mean we have to be willing to be vulnerable at times? <laughs> yeah, it does. Rahab must have felt incredibly vulnerable sitting in her house as the entire city was being destroyed around her. But sometimes trusting others means you have to let yourself be vulnerable. Does that mean you have to take risks at times? Yeah, it absolutely does. Rahab risked everything. The moment she decided to trust those spies as she hid them on her roof and then lied to the king's men about where the spies went. Sometimes trusting others means taking great risks. Well, does that mean you'll have to give up some things? Without a doubt it does. Rahab had to walk away from everything she ever knew and start her life all over again. You see, sometimes trusting others will mean giving up some things, but you know what else it means? When you decide to truly trust your brothers and sisters in Christ, it means you are never alone in the fight. It means forming bonds with others that last a lifetime. Just ask our veterans here today. It means overcoming your greatest battles in ways that you never could when you're alone. Trusting others is not always easy, and it is certainly not always perfect, but it is the only way to get yourself where you need to be when you're confronted by the greatest battles in your life, because that is how God created us, to need him and to need each other, okay? If you've been keeping people at arm's length, why don't you come in from the cold, and trust the body of Christ, the church, the people of God to love you. And invariably at this point, someone will say, well, you know what? I've tried that <laughs> and I've been hurt before. Well, join the club. I've been working in churches for 25 years and attending them for 47. And I think I can say with confidence at this point, that if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably been hurt in the church. Why? Because we're human beings, which isn't an excuse, but it is a reality. A reality, by the way, that does not excuse any of us from having to trust others. In fact, you want to talk about being hurt by people. Rahab had been used and abused by men for most of her life. Most of those were probably the king's men because they were the ones who most frequented her house. How easy do you think it was when two men, spies from another kingdom, show up at her door? How easy do you think it was for Rahab to trust those two men? It would have been infinitely easier for her to turn them into her own government and receive immediate respect and reward. But she didn't. Because somewhere down deep inside of her, God had been speaking, and she knew it. She knew that it was time. 
It was time to come in from the cold and finally decide to put her trust in others, which was the only way she would ever be able to overcome this current battle in her life. You know what, to be honest, I think the siege on Jericho was as big or a bigger of a test for Rahab than it was for the Israelites, because at least they had the benefit of seeing God move miraculously on their behalf in the very recent past. All that Rahab had to go on was the word of two foreign spies, men who were there under deceptive pretenses to begin with. And yet despite all of that, Rahab chose to trust God's people because deep down God was speaking to her. And the truth is, I believe that today God is speaking to some of you. You know down deep that it's time for you to come in from the cold and allow yourself to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ once again. Will it mean being vulnerable at times? Yeah, yeah, it will. Will it mean taking some risks? It sure will. Will it mean giving up some things? No doubt about it. But if you want to get to the place where you need to be, the place where God created you to be, then you're going to have to allow yourself to trust the other members of this family. You know, you know when King Solomon wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. The word trust in that verse is the ancient Hebrew word batak. And among other things, it means to be careless. Not careless as in reckless. Careless as in without a care. You understand that's the kind of trust that God wants us to have in him and in each other. A trust that is so powerfully strong that no matter what battle we're facing in life, we are without a care. We are devoid of worry or panic or stress or strife because we trust God so much that we know he will guide us through it and we trust one another so much that we know our family in Christ will help us through it. That's a trust so strong that we believe the enemy has already been defeated. It's a trust so strong that we're willing to be vulnerable. It's a trust so strong we're willing to risk everything. It's a trust so strong that we'll give up whatever it takes to get to the place he's calling us to. That may sound a bit radical because it is. But that's how Joshua overcame every obstacle. That is how the Israelites overcame Jericho. And that is how Rahab overcame her past. By living their lives with a radical trust in God and a radical trust in each other. And we are called to nothing less. Nothing less than the very same radical trust in him and in each other. For that is the only way we will ever overcome the greatest battles in our lives. Maybe, it, maybe it's a, an impossible obstacle that you think you'll never overcome. Maybe it's a dysfunctional circumstance or a broken relationship that you think can never be reconciled. Maybe it's your past that you think you can never escape. Listen to me. There is nothing you cannot overcome. There is nothing you cannot overcome as long as you're willing to live your life 
with radical trust. Let's pray.